Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Clam Bake! Welcome to the Clam Bake. It's a fresh take on a question all this time. If a woman is alone in the forest, will she still be undermined? It's a sorority of equality. It's a bonfire of a patriarchy. Come on, your hands, bring your moms, bring your dads. Come to the Clam Bake with me. The opposite of a sausage fest. I'm Angela Gullner. I'm Lindsay Stidham. And we want to be better feminists, damn it. We do, man. Man, the world is tough. Uh, <laughs> each week we interview different guests about their experiences, challenge, challenges, triumphs, and follies with feminism. Yeah, because being a, a human is tough. And being a feminist is complicated. But our best resource is each other. Welcome to the Clam Bay Clams. Woohoo! Quick clam check-in. Uh, how's your clam lens? My clam is good. I'm I'm good. Uh, you know, always too much to do. But I literally can't stop thinking about this um, Jane Doe. I can't stop thinking about her. It's like, so right now in the world, uh, the Donald Trump administration is blocking an immigrant who is being held in detention, 17 years old, who found out she was pregnant while she was in detention, blocking her from getting an abortion. Um, and hopefully the courts are going to do the right thing. And uh, they already have upheld the, her legal right to an abortion. So hopefully everything gets to move forward. But I like literally can't stop thinking about her. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, uh, yeah, that's a lot. It makes me, like, just so angry on the inside. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, we're living in, uh, we're li- the dystopian future is here. It's here. And I try to uh, take a deep breath and uh, <laughs> know that um, maybe some good people will run for the midterm elections. Yeah, I think they will. Yeah, yeah. How's your clam? I'm sick, you guys. <laughs> I'm going to do my best today, but Lindsay might be leading this one because I'm so sick as a dog, sick as a dog. And still here. And here. That's how much we love the freaking clam bake. That's how much we love yeah. the gosh darn clam bake is like none of us take sick days for anything ever. Probably to the detriment of our health, but yeah. you know, what are you going to do? I might take a sick day tomorrow though. Yeah. Self-care is important. It's very important. It's very important. Like, yeah. I, I want to take, like, a day off to write angry letters. <laughs> like, that's, that's what fair. I want to do in my day off. Yeah. <laughs> write angry letters about all that's the things self-care. in the world that's that like a, make me that's angry. That's mental health. Um, it totally you know. is. It totally is. Uh, that's what I would do in my day off. Anyway. Um, so today we have an amazing woman, Callie Marie Renison. Um, she is from the University of... I believe she teaches in Colorado now, but we're going to get more details. Um, And she got a lot of attention a couple of months ago for getting Brock Turner's face in a textbook for the definition of rape. And she is no joke. She has a BS in psychology, an MA in sociology, an MA in political science. She was awarded the Bonnie S. Fisher Victimology Career Award um, in the American Society of Criminology. She served on a National Academics Committee examining domestic sex trafficking of minors in the United States. She's a senior researcher at the Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Statistics. I know she just got appointed to make sure that her current um, university follows Title IX laws. It's like her job at her school. So dope. She is just an all-around badass bitch, and I'm just so excited to talk to her. And I just randomly emailed her when I saw her name in the news for getting Brock Turner's face in a textbook under the definition of rape. I was like, I have to meet and talk to this lady. And I sent her an email, told her about clam bake, and she was like, yes. So this is really exciting. We're so stoked to talk to her. We're going to call her up. um, We're going to call her up because she is in Colorado. So here we go with Callie. Um, Well, phoning in from Colorado, right? Yes. From Colorado is Callie Renison. Yeah. Are we saying it correctly? Yeah, Kelly Renison. Yeah, thanks okay, for great. having me here. Amazing. I'm happy to be with you. Oh my God, we are so happy to have you. Yeah, we're so thrilled. We're so thrilled to have you uh, here with us via yeah, via phone. <laughs> Um, so we also learned a new technical thing tonight. If we ever sound weird is like, we, we can't, we have to talk into our speakerphone and our microphone simultaneously. So if you can't hear us and you need us to repeat anything, um, feel free to ask us to repeat. It's a real fancy setup we got here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're in a booth in West Hollywood, a booth in West Hollywood, um, behind improv theater, but you know, you got to make things work. Yeah. Just living the dream. 
Um, so yeah, our first question for everybody always is, what, are you a feminist? Why or why not? Um, as I tell all my friends, I'm absolutely and unapologetically a feminist, and I'm proud to be a feminist. And I, I mean, I think why just seems so basic, and that is that I just think people should have opportunities regardless of their characteristics. And in this case, that just because I'm a female or somebody else, we should not be limited in what we can try to do. This simple. <laughs> Yes. Amen. We love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you get into what you're doing now? Okay. Yeah. So most of my work, I do research and it's on violence and most of that focuses on violence against women. And it actually started in the late nineties. After I finished my schooling, I worked at the department of justice in, um, in a group called the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Where I worked can I, on can I pause you real quick? I'm, you bet. I'm going to reframe that question um, real quick. Can you give us okay. a brief overview of <laughs> what you do now and what has led you to do what you do now, just to give us a little bit of context? You bet. Um, yeah, currently I have a few roles at the university, but the major role is that I'm a researcher. So I use data to do research on violence against women. That's the primary focus of my research. And what got me into that was a prior position that I had at the Department of Justice initially working under Janet Reno, and then later following once I know. I'm from Florida. I've met her. She's so great. She's the best. Yeah. I I don't have, like, any hero worship except her. I love her, and I loved working with her. And one time she touched my hand, and I can still feel it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. She's the best. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, after being at DOJ, I went ahead and went into academia and just continued the violence against women research, and that brought me to where I am today. That's amazing. So there was nothing besides your um, Department of Justice experience that, like, drew you to be like, this is my life's calling? Um, no, I think it's kind of funny how life took me there. I actually was drawn to go there because I like data and I like doing research and I like research methodology. And the position I landed is using a data set called the National Crime Victimization Survey. And I sat down and, you know, having never had a criminology class in my life, I started answering my own questions and testing my own assumptions about victimization, who gets victimized. And I learned that pretty much everything I thought I knew was wrong. And so these reports would be published and released to the public. And my hope was is that people who were thinking things like, um, you know, older people are victimized at higher rates than younger people. It's like, that's not true, so that younger people could start understanding their risk better. Um, yeah, so it was very interesting. And then I was drawn into the violence against women work, and there's a, um, you know, it's just kind of expl- an exploding area and a lot of need for it and a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I wanted to provide those to hopefully, I mean, reduce violence against women. Yeah, that's so cool. So you're not um, currently teaching, but could you tell us a bit about like what your day to day is um, in your work? Yeah, I have a I have I have two major roles at the university. So I'm a professor and do my research, and write and publish articles and write books. And the other role that um, not many people are aware of is that I'm actually I direct what's called our Office of Equity, and I'm the Title IX coordinator for the University of Colorado Denver both campuses. So I spend a lot of time working with people who have. Um, you know, experienced issues, my staff and I, and, um, you know, sitting in meetings and looking at policy and making sure that we're doing things right. So it's a, a lot of meetings during the day and a lot of writing, but, uh, but I do love it because it all kind of points to the same thing, and that is trying to, trying to help people stay safe and reduce victimization against anybody, really. Can you talk, you know, we hear so much about Title IX, especially right now with Betsy DeVos and the things that she's been saying recently. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, the nitty-gritty workings of Title IX as it actually is implemented? How, how What does that look like from your side? Yeah, I mean, um, an interesting thing about it is that with the federal guidelines, there's still a lot left up to each university about how they, you know, the procedures that they use. And I can say that my university put in place some really, I think, forward-thinking procedures such that even the recent decisions made by Betsy DeVos hasn't affected us at all. We've been really great about, you know, due process, making sure both parties are supported and get get the care that they need, but ensuring that people on campus and off campus, too, if they're one of our people, are as safe as we can make them. So it's, it's one of the other things that I think is really interesting that the public doesn't see is that a lot, you know, different offices, one might focus only on Title IX. Our office focuses on allegations of discrimination 
against 15 protected classes plus sexual misconduct. And so everything that comes to our office is not Title IX. And in fact, I would say more of it is not Title IX. But when it comes, you know, we jump on it because it's really important. And we do want to make sure that our students and faculty, staff, people who are visiting us are safe. How big is the university? So it's two physical campuses. One is downtown Denver, and the other is the Anschutz Medical Campus. And I should know the student population. I know that we did a survey last year, and I ended up pulling about 30,000 email addresses. So I, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but it's it's a, it's a large university. It's a little bit, it's not like your traditional brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. We It's mostly a commuter campus. We don't have Greek life. We don't have sports, and we don't have lot of dorms on campus there are a few around so so it's a little bit different if you want to some other university it's more traditional they're probably going to have a really different experience with their title nine um sure incident yeah and are you a public university or a private university yeah we're we're public so we're four-year public graduate education in the medical school and um under title nine protections do those vary under public versus private schools um, it's, it has to do with whether you're getting money from the federal government, whether you need to follow those guidelines. Yeah. So some private universities are still getting money, so they need to do that. Got it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thing to know if you're a student, I would say. <laughs> what are the majority of, of the the complaints that you receive, that you, that you look into, what do they revolve around, or is there no majority? You know, it can be different every day, but, you know, it, it ranges from – pretty minor things to very, you know, very, very serious things. So minor things might be somebody who contacts us because somebody in class is looking at them funny and they don't feel safe. And so we'll work with both parties to see what we can do to move forward. It could be a staff member who feels like they're being discriminated against based on pregnancy issues or race or um, sexual orientation or a number of different things. So it really does differ every single day. It's, It's pretty varied. Do you get new cases every day, or how how frequent are they? We certainly get inquiries every single day, um, and you know most most of the inquiries we get don't go to what we call a formal investigation. That is pretty; it's about ten percent of the calls we get. But we definitely get inquiries all day long. Wow! So so most of them are usually resolved through some type of mediation process without going to like more formal case proceedings. Yeah, we. Yeah, we kind of refer to it as informal resolution. So it might be sitting down with somebody and talking about how their behavior impacts other people and what are some better ways to, you know, work with whoever the the impacted parties are going forward. Um, Sometimes people just are not aware about how their behavior is impacting others. And they're often pretty happy to know, you know, it's like the first time somebody's told them this and um, it's going to be helpful. Sometimes there is mediation. You know, sometimes all the way up to having somebody removed from campus. It, it just depends. But the informal ones are sitting down talking, maybe talking with a supervisor and just seeing how everybody can move forward, in, you know, in a positive way. Do, does the person who filed the complaint, are they a part of this or do they get to remain anonymous? They, 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 get, the, they get the choice, right? Um, sometimes it's really hard depending on if somebody comes forward and says so-and-so did X, Y, and Z. Um, and then we go to that person. It's pretty obvious they know who it was, but we do try to respect the confidentiality the best that we can. And then something else that we try to do, if somebody comes forward and says, well, I just want to tell you about this, this really bothers me, but I don't want you to use my name, then unless there's a safety issue, then we don't. We don't do that. Right. We respect that, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you're able to answer this question question um and if you're not that's totally fine but has there been a a most like difficult or stressful case that that you've handled um so i personally don't do the investigations as the director of the office i'm involved in all of them mm-hmm. um i mean i i think the ones that go to uh, the formal investigations are always kind of stressful because you've got two parties you know big things are on the line they're both really stressed out they're generally neither happy with the way anything goes because somebody's experienced something bad and we can't make that right. Right. Um, and then somebody might be looking at getting fired or removed from campus and they're pretty stressed out. So a lot of what we do in these type of offices is, I mean, certainly looking at safety issues, but also how can we support people moving forward? Even somebody, a student who's been accused of doing something pretty terrible, we work with them to make sure can you still get to class, you know, class whether it's online, depending on the allegation, 
um, and the individual who's impacted, like getting um, connected with all sorts of resources. And, you know, it can be really hard. And there are cases where people are in the office frequently stressed about it. And we just keep working with them and pointing them to the advocacy center and other like confidential uh, sources. So they can all be really stressful. I, I mean, I think everything that goes to formal investigation is stressful for everybody. Yeah. What uh, what causes something to move forward to a formal investigation? A, p- a part of it, like a, a rule of thumb, is that if people come forward and make allegations, and if we if we, we look at it this way, and this isn't a hundred percent, but if everything they're telling us and other people that we've gathered information from is totally true, and it reaches a policy violation, then we will move forward to the formal investigation. Um, if if everything they told us wouldn't reach the level of policy violation, that's when we'll talk to them about informal resolutions and other things that we can do. So, um, um, when if, you say the, uh-huh. when you say policy violation, that would be ha- that would have to be something written in the school's code of yeah. policy or ethics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And any university should have on on their web page. There should be a web page about their Title IX policies and discrimination policies. And so if you would go to my university, for example, you would find the policies and the specific procedures that we go through. So everybody knows exactly the steps that are going to be taken. Um, And that's something that we certainly share with people as well so that they know that. So it's not like this, what's going to happen? I don't understand. Um, You know, we work with them to let them know what the next steps are. If, say, somebody comes and makes an allegation that's pretty serious and and, uh, we think that we should do a formal investigation, but they're asking us not to, Depending on then we can depending on the actual incident, we can respect that. But if it's a safety issue for the campus, then we can't, right? I can't if somebody say goes out and sexually assaults three people, but the people who are assaulted don't want to talk, you know, don't want to use their name, well we can't just turn a blind eye to that because it's a safety issue on campus. So it's every one of them's a little bit different, but those are sort of the rough rules of thumb that we try to operate by. Just in case anyone listening isn't familiar, can you give us a, a brief summary of what Title IX is? Yeah, I mean, briefly, it was, a, it was actually a law that was passed in 1972, and, and it was initially kind of thought about allowing women to participate in sports. So it used to be that money that was going to um, schools was for sports stuff would be used to um, support, you know, men's football, men's basketball, this and that, and not go to women. And so it started to be viewed that, hey, you need to use this money that allows women to engage in sports as well, you know, for equality. And then over time, it started to be viewed also as um, how can somebody go to school and get a good education if they're afraid for their safety, if they're worried they're going to be raped or sexually assaulted. And so that's kind of where the turn happened. And so now people think about Title IX as having to do with sexual misconduct and looking at that and making sure campuses are safe and that People on campus stop remedy and protect, you know, don't not to let this stuff happen again. And that's kind of the quick overview. Does it still technically encompass both things, though, to this day? Um, both things being what? Money for Rapers. equal money for sports and safety on campus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the laws never changed. It's just how it's been interpreted or guidelines have been put out is what has changed. But yeah, definitely the same thing with sports. I was at a meeting just recently. And somebody was asking, um, we had different questions about, hey, there's a powder puff team at my university, Can and some, and some males want to get on it, can they do that? And also, here's a female who wants to try out for a football team, should we let her because it's really rough and things like that? And the answer is, yeah, you can't deny people those opportunities based on um, you know, their sex or gender or things like that. And certainly, you can't, if you have only a team for one, you definitely need to give them the opportunity. Yeah. We have a lot yeah. of listeners who are are young, who are early college, um, early college aged, or maybe even just going to college, or maybe even just going. Um, if if they're feeling like their their safety or their their rights to participate in school are being violated in any way, what advice would you give them for approaching the university? Yeah, I mean they should all have Title IX or the often called um, equity offices like ours is on campus. They should have the ability to easily find a contact number, even make a report online, and just say this is what's going on. This is what I feel. Um, generally, those offices would then contact them and gather some more information and move forward. The offices, according to the guidelines, are supposed to be operating independently, 
So you don't have leaders of the university kind of overseeing these things and telling them how to, you know, how to resolve them, et cetera. But that's going to be the first step to do. Um, and, and that's what I'd recommend to everyone. And they should also be able to find policies and procedures so they can kind of have an understanding about what's going to happen. But generally, it's a phone number or you can walk into the office or there's an online um, reporting mechanism at most places. And I encourage them to do it. You know, do it because maybe even if this isn't a policy issue, they might point the individual to another resource that could help them, mm-hmm. um, and it's important. The other thing to keep in mind is that in our office, you may you might be encountering something that you're like, eh, that's not totally a policy violation, but you don't know what else we have in our office. So by somebody coming forward and saying, I've got this, this thing's happening, I don't know what's going on, we might know how that fits into the larger picture. So I always encourage people to come to us, make the report, and then we'll let them know what goes on with that. Because if you have a lot of low-level behaviors, then that can add up to a problem. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid to go report, though. Don't do that at all. Um, Definitely don't quit school. So. Yeah, I think it can I think it can feel really overwhelming like the idea of paperwork, the idea of even like sifting through a website and then especially if there's any kind of trauma involved at right. all. I think it can feel like a really big mountain. Not true. And you know, some other options that you generally have on universities is there'll be an advocacy center. So sometimes we have people who go to our advocacy centers, um, say a sexual assault or a rape has occurred. And they um, have been connected with the advocacy group, and the advocacy group group will bring them over to us and help them navigate it. And you can generally have – you can always have somebody there to support you um, to, to kind of go through that. And at least in our case, there's not like – it's a report is simply, hey, sit down and talk to me. Mm. We'll do the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, people who come to us don't have to do that. So it's not onerous in that way. I mean, it, certainly when trauma is involved – it's hard, but, but but most offices with good practices are aware of that. So we try to minimize the t- uh, number of times people have to share stories and things like that. So we'll get multiple, like an investigator in the room and the advocate in the room. And, you, you know, you can always stop, too. And you always right. have the choice to say, I'm done with this. I'm not doing this anymore. Nobody's going to chase them down. Are you required? Yeah, that- oh, mm-hmm. go on. Oh, what were you going to say? No, go right ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to ask if, if you're required um, at your particular university to to contact the police if a crime, like a potential crime has been committed? If there's an ongoing danger to the university, that's one thing. But if somebody comes to us and you know, says, I was out last weekend and I got raped by you know, somebody in my biology class, no, we're not required. We will let the individual know that, that police reporting is an option for them, that we will help them do that if they want. But no, we're not required to do that. But if it's an ongoing safety issue, like on campus and there's problems, yeah, absolutely. And um, if you do decide to file a report, uh, you always have the right to remain anonymous. Is that correct? Um, yes, you can. But like I said, it just depends on the type of right. incident. Yeah. It's sometimes hard to maintain that, you know. Um, right. But we do our best. We absolutely do our best. Yeah. 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 Got it. You, it's so cool to have an expert on. I this know, stuff on the I know, it really is. Yeah, because this yeah. all feels like this all seems so so murky. It seems so murky, it, it, but it's nice be- to talk to you. <laughs> Before I even moved into the office, I mean, I was doing research on college student victimization, and so I saw, you know, you think you're seeing kind of the complete picture, and then moving into the office and seeing on the ground what happens, the sort of calls that come in, has been so informative, and I think it's great for research and. I can go back to some research conferences and talk to some of my colleagues and just, I mean, this is what I recommend to them all. I'm like, spend a week in your office of equity, spend a week in your Title IX office and see what's going on up there. And it'll really inform your research. So it's been, it's been great. And it's really nice too to, I mean, to, to be there and helping, you know, face to face versus behind a computer screen typing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what are the biggest things that you've learned um, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that kind of contrary to what you hear in the media, we're not trying to be the criminal justice system. Um, it's really about supporting people and helping them move forward and continue their education, right? We're not trying to, you know, we're not like um, cops and we're going out and we're going to get somebody and throw them off campus. That's not our goal. Our goal is to help people continue with that. So I think just the perspective was something I didn't expect um, I think the number of low-level calls surprised me. I 
somehow I think I bought into the media narrative that every call that comes in is a really big call, like almost like college cops, the television show is really Oh, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, just the variation. I think something else I've learned is that a lot of the low-level things, I think, can be solved with better communication. Um, Could you give get, us an example? Get, yeah. So uh, one that I've seen a fair number of is somebody in class who feels like somebody's looking at them funny and now they don't feel safe. Mm. So they come to us and, you know, and, and we're happy to work with them and we'd like them to come to us if you don't feel safe. But in the end, a lot of times these are saw, would have been solved by somebody just going, I notice you're looking at me. Do you have a question? Um, and just a little bit of communication sometimes could help instead of getting very frightened and getting worked up and, and coming to us and that we can help them work through it. But I just, it makes me wonder when I do work with students, how I can help them learn easier ways to communicate with people, uh, you know, and as adults too, it's not just students, it's adults too. Yeah. I think that's been very interesting to think about. Totally. I think we're in like a whole new age of how we're communicating with each other for better or worse mm-hmm. with technology. Well, and <laughs> with the political climate, I, I, I mean, I'm not, we're not, we're, you know, a decade out of school here, um, Lindsay and I, but the atmosphere feels so charged and nerves feel so raw and it, and it feels like, you know, and rightly so, like there's a lot of like trigger words and, and trigger ideas yeah. and, and people's anxieties can be really sparked really quickly right now. So I, I imagine that, that you're getting a lot, a lot right now. Yeah. Right. And, that, in fact, too, is something that with some of my research that I've talked about is that I, I'll do talks where I talk about the difference between campus violence and college student victimization. And campus violence is what's happening on a campus, right? But most of the, and it varies school to school, but in general, most of the violence that college students experience happens off campus. But it's always portrayed as campus violence. And so I'm finding students that are afraid and they're afraid to be on campus, and they're afraid of everything on campus. And so then they leave campus where technically their risk is higher, hmm. which is a little alarming to me. And I've had people who've talked to me have heard me say this, but I've had parents come to me after talks and say, and this is the worst thing I've ever heard, and I've heard it more than once, we are not sending our daughter to college anymore because it's not safe there. We're oh, keeping her home. That's heartbreaking. And that, it is. That's about the worst outcome possible as far as I'm concerned. So, well, I think it's really important for us to understand where problems are and, you know, try to root them out and get rid of them. The idea that campuses are just horrible, horrible, violent places is a little bit overblown. I mean, and even some other research I've done has been published and other people have done. Well, if you take 18 to 24-year-olds, those in, in college and those not in college, females, and you look at sexual violence, those who are not in college are victimized at one and a half to two times higher rates. Wow. So, really? That's fascinating. Yes. I did not it know is. that. Yeah. So it's so, I mean, in some ways, being in college, you're already, your risk is already down a little bit compared to those who are not, which is, it just points to the deal that rape and sexual assault is a societal problem. It's not a college problem. So it's, I mean, I'm glad that we're focusing on colleges and college students and trying to make them safer. But we need to back up a little bit and go like, it is everywhere. Yeah. Which I think we're starting to see some. We're starting to see that right now. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Um, So speaking of people who are committing heinous acts, uh, the whole reason I found you, and I want to get the facts right, so I'll let you tell the story yourself. But the whole reason I found you is that your name was in a bunch of articles a couple of months ago about Brock Turner's face being in a textbook example of rape. But I will let you explain like your involvement and how you got all this attention. It seemed like all at once as well. Yeah, it was a pretty surprising Tuesday morning when I got <laughs> <laughs> The book, the book actually came out in its second edition in January. The first edition. What is uh, What's the book called? It's called Introduction to Criminal Justice, and it's published by Sage Publications. And um, I wrote it with a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Mary Dodd, and it's the first intro book, intro CJ book written by women, which is very cool. Whoa! And congrats! Wow, that's amazing. Really cool. It's really awesome. And you know, initially, I admit that I thought, eh, that's not going to make that big a difference. But in the end. I think it made a lot of difference in so many ways in the book. And I think this was one of them. It, it just didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it was anything unusual to put his picture in there when we're talking about this. 
And uh, but but anyway, so the book came out. It's been out since January. You know, of course, it went through many reviews. It's even been adopted in some law schools for first year law uh, students. Cool. And um, I, yeah, it is. But um, evidently, a, a young lady in I think it was Oregon, right? Oregon or Washington? I'm sorry. Um, took a picture. She was taking a class, and she took a picture of that page with Brock Turner's photo on it, and put it on social media. And um, boom, it went crazy. And I I got one email on a Monday that was a little puzzling. I wasn't I didn't really understand it until the next morning. I was just so busy, and I kind of rolled out of bed and stumbled into the dining room to look at Facebook to get started. And my feed is just full of this picture. I'm like, holy moly, what happened? <laughs> oh my god! It was great. It was really really crazy. Um, yeah, and I and I admit it was a little. It was a little uncomfortable because I tend to fly under the radar a little bit, but I'm psyched that, I mean, we wrote the book hoping to stimulate discussion in the classroom about criminal justice system and sexual violence. And it, I mean, this is better than I could have dreamed that we're helping to stimulate the conversation in, you know, outside of the classroom. So I think it's all good. What's the context in which he's, his picture is featured? Sure. So this particular is page 20 of the book, and it's chapter two. We're talking about methods and data and definition, and this particular section is about the changing definitions of crime over time. And in particular, this page was the changing definitions of rape over time. And um, in the first edition of the book, we didn't have his picture because when it came out, the incident hadn't happened. But as we were teaching and working with students, and he was in the media, this is who everyone was asking us about. Like, what is this? What does this mean? And then, of course, when he was sentenced, the sentence people were appalled with so short, and he served half that time. And people, but so it just it just seemed really natural to us to add the picture in the second edition um, under this discussion about how rape has changed over time, because this is who students ask about mm-hmm. constantly. And sure. and so we just took took that opportunity to beneath the picture to put some um, discussion questions about. Um, some people are really shocked that he, you know, only served three months of a six-month term, and others are shocked he served any time at all. What do you think? Because then we can talk to students and tell them that, you know, most people who commit sexual violence don't serve any time at all. Why is that? Why is it that violence that women overwhelmingly experience doesn't seem to result in much jail time for people? And, Bill um, Cosby. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, as a professor, I don't feel like it's my place to put my opinions in the book, but sure. I'm definitely going to ask questions to make them think about it a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of how it happened. Can we ask you for your opinion now? Or and, <laughs> and or can I, you also tell us um, how has the definition of rape changed over time? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, it's so interesting. So, you know, long time ago, rape was viewed as a crime against property, not a crime against a person. Oh, my because, God. Uh, I know. Uh, and you can still see vestiges of that. Absolutely. The way people view it, right? So these old, old ways are still there. But it was like um, 2011 that the FBI finally agreed to make some changes to their um, definitions of rape. States had been doing it a little bit more. And so but in 2013, for example, um, by according to the FBI, men could be raped because before that men could not be raped, which is absurd oh, because men wow. are raped and they can be raped. And that now is reflected in the definition. Also, the, the by force was removed from the definition because mm-hmm. you can be raped Yes, by force, but also if you're unconscious or, you know, unable to consent, it has to do with consent, not force. Um, And also things like marital rape has changed over time. It used to be that if you were married to somebody, then they, by definition, could not rape you, which is certainly untrue as well. So lots of changes that just reflect the, I think, the the view that rape is violence about um, invading a person's body, right, without consent. You can't walk onto somebody's property, um, you know, <laughs> uninvited and go in their house. That's a crime. And it's the same with people. Stay mm-hmm. out of their bodies unless you got consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is your opinion on why um, it's still men like Brock Turner don't face what some people would view are just consequences for their actions? Yeah, I have a couple mixed feelings. Of course, it's never an easy answer. But I, I was of the... I'm of the group that I was shocked he served any time at all. 
and Florida really? was like only three, yeah. Only I am too, actually. Like, he was a golden yeah. child, a golden yeah. boy. Yeah. Yeah. That he served the three months was, I was like, this is progress. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Because we know of people who do, that we know that commit sexual violence, something like 2 to 3% serve any time at all because, A, most of them don't even get into the criminal justice system. They don't go to trial. Then and then they're not sentenced in that way. Now the caveat is this: is that for people of color, <laughs> it's right. a little bit different story, right? If you're a black man accused of rape, chances are you're going to serve some time. So that's why it's a little bit mixed. But for him, that he got the three months, I was shocked. But although I still view it as a completely, I mean, for somebody who's going to penetrate somebody without consent, um, I think more than three months definitely warranted. Yeah, and I I do think the reason why he faced the consequences he faced was that incredible letter that his um, victim just chose to write. I think it really um, I, made a difference. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a big part of it. It's very. It was just an awesome letter, and you know, throughout all of this um, kind of attention to the book, it's the one person you're the first person who's mentioned her. Wow. Um, everybody's been really focused on him. And I have, well, I'm really glad that there's the discussion. The one person I thought a lot about is her and hoping that she didn't roll out of bed that Tuesday morning and, you know, get faced with this all over social media sure. and that that didn't hurt her. Yeah. Um, and I, I have no idea, but that would be my, that would be my one big regret if I discovered that it was painful to her. But yeah, yeah, no, her letter was amazing. And in the next edition of the book, I might add a little bit of it in there because I'm going to expand this discussion yeah. in the next edition for sure. Yeah, such a powerful letter. How mm-hmm. have you um, have you been aware? I mean, obviously, you've been aware of the Harvey Weinstein absolute disgusting chaos. Yeah. Um, have you been following the Me Too hashtag campaign at all? Yes, yeah, I contributed to it. Yes, I have. I think it's. I think it's amazing, and I love it. And it um, it makes me realize that I've changed my thinking on this a little bit over time, and I definitely still feel like people who have experienced sexual violence, it is up to them to share it or not. Mm-hmm. But I've come to believe that not sharing it isn't helping. It's not working, right? And nothing's changing, and that maybe what it's going to take is everybody doing a Me Too and saying, this is what happened to me, Um and maybe then we can move it forward, right? Being yeah. quiet isn't helping. Right. Yeah. Do you yeah, think I this... Think um, sorry, go ahead. No, I just think it's amazing. I think it's a great social media campaign. Yeah, I think it's been really powerful, for sure. Um, do you think with this... Uh, I mean, Angela and I live in Los Angeles, so people are still just like talking about the Harvey Weinstein story every day. But um, do you think... Seeing somebody like this fall from grace or whatever you want to call it and still up for a debate of what he's eventually going to face for all of this, um, do you think that things possibly are changing right now, that we're in a moment of change? I I am hopeful. And then I wonder if I'm like endlessly naive, but I'm really hopeful um, because A, it's gone on for a little while, right? The Me Too and some of the other stories surrounding it, it just seems like a lot of things are happening. I don't know if you saw in the news today, um, you know, George H.W. Bush was accused of sexually assaulting somebody. And then. Oh, my God. I didn't see that yet. I was teaching all day. I I, like haven't looked at the news all day. Yeah. Yeah. And by the end of the day, he's come out and said he did. He did. I grabbed her on the butt. Yeah. um, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Because he's of he's of such an old generation. Like his apology is like crazy. He's like, sorry, she didn't appreciate my joke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like, oh, George, George. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But it's, it's like you see that happening and maybe more people will come forward and there'll be more and more of it. I. I hope it gains some momentum. And um, I was talking with a girlfriend the other day about it and just the idea that a lot of this is uncomfortable for people. But a part of me is like, well, that's what we need to have. It's how do you know, women have been carrying this and men too who have experienced this have been carrying this burden themselves so that other people aren't uncomfortable. Well, maybe it's time to get uncomfortable. So we do something about it. Well, women certainly are uncomfortable all the time with it. It's like, exactly. (laughs) Like, how do we, how do we, it's, um, there was this really 
great quote. Um, I'm trying to pull it up right now that talks about um, the the terminology violence against women that it's a passive mm-hmm. construction. There's no yeah. active agent. How mm-hmm. how do how do we start to change this? Because when there's no active uh, agent, then then there's no one to be held responsible for the the violence against women, the rape against women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that the that article went around quite a bit, and I think I'm going to even focus on my own languages, you know, and, and correct it in that same way. In the same way that I struggle with people who use the term sexual assault as this big umbrella. Um, when there's penetration, I'm calling it rape, and mm-hmm. that bothers some people. But you know what? That's what it is. And to call it sexual assault, at least in my opinion, minimizes it because then it is. It could just be a grab on the butt, which right. you shouldn't do. But it is different than you know being raped. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think language continues to be really important, and that that we should do that. And instead of focusing on, um, you know, what she was wearing, what she was doing, and did she fight back, and all of the terrible things that people continue to do, that we need to just start asking questions about him. What were you doing? Why were you doing? You know, things like that. And keep the focus on the person who committed the violence, just like we would if somebody robbed you, right? Or somebody broke into your house. I'm right. not going to start going, well, did you leave it open? Are you sure you didn't have flowers on the porch that made it look nice and inviting? Are you sure you just regretted it? Things like that. We need to just start treating rape and sexual assault like we treat all other types of violence. I I hope that this is the beginning of that, you know, the ship turning. It might be a slow turn, but if it starts turning in the right way, yay. Yeah, yeah. I love that um, flowers on the porch metaphor. It made me laugh a little bit. Because <laughs> that's exactly what we tell girls, like, wear this, don't wear this. But it's like always, a, whenever you are deconstructing a woman's appearance, it's always a losing battle for the woman. It's just, you yeah. can't, you can't win. You can't win yeah. that battle. It's just so hard, like, to read all of these Me Too posts from women and men and know that, like, I don't know the statistic, you might, but, like, X percentage, a really high percentage are committed by men and those men aren't posting statuses like those men still aren't being held accountable and it it just makes me really frustrated that the burden is on the victims well when i posted on facebook i wrote you know me too and i said but honestly who hasn't and i said and by us saying me too we're still being nice because the next step is to start naming names right and i think that that's really true that you know uh, (laughs) And who knows if people in my past saw that. There's probably a few going, oh, shit. You know? so, yeah. But that's okay. Maybe they need to start thinking like that. Yeah, so, they probably do. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> definitely. So um, being in your line of work day in and day out and also, like, all the research you've done, do you have any thoughts on what colleges overall could be doing better to help people um, – reach towards equality and stand up for themselves? Because I know colleges handle this in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what I see in my own office of equity and happening on other universities is a step in the right direction because now there's a place that people can go. that It needs to be publicized so people know that they can go there and it will be taken seriously. So I think that this is the good first step. I also, I have strong beliefs also about in universities getting women into positions of leadership more and more. I mean, it's gotten better over time, but it's still not. Um, I have, I just think that until we're in places where we're making those decisions and making the policies, it's, it's not going to get better fast enough. Kind of the, the same logic is that we've been waiting for it to get better and it hasn't. So now it's changed the rules and we need to sit in the leadership roles and do it ourselves. Right. Because women are very rarely presidents of universities. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. 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 It's gotten better over time in the last few years. It's been a higher percentage of women like um, appointed to chancellors and provosts and things like that. But we're still the minority. And yeah. even when you look at deans and things like that, it, we're still in the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last number I saw, and it wasn't too old, is that of tenure, tenure-track faculty, 48% are women. Yeah. Um, so we're not even a majority there. But in every other way in a university, in terms of students, in terms of staff, in terms of instructors and lecturers, women dominate in, wow. in numbers-wise. Oh. So we need to move into leadership. Yeah. And I think that makes all the difference. I have a, My university has a female chancellor, and I think – 
the world of her. She's fantastic, and she's been there maybe a year and a half. And I, there's already changes that are happening that I think have everything to do with who she is as a person. Yeah, that's so encouraging to hear. That's really cool. That is really, mm-hmm. really encouraging. So with our current um, administration, with Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump, like, are, are you at all worried of some of these protections and things that are in place right now going away? Um, again, I might be naive, but not really, because Title IX, it would take a lot to make Title IX go away. They might change the way that we're supposed to interpret it, but I find it hard to believe that universities would say, okay, then safety of students is no longer our concern, no problem. You know, we'll just focus on plagiarism issues, but sexual violence we're not going to look at. So I think that it's it's almost like that, that ship is turned enough. I don't think it can turn back. Can you imagine the marketing for some university that decided to do that? Oh, crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I imagine it would be similar to the marketing that they would like to put out about you don't need birth control. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think Just use the rhythm method. (laughs) That's right. Just say no. Yeah. It works for everything. Right, right. Um, this has been so cool. I mean, we could talk about stuff like this all night. Uh, I mean, this has been amazing. I feel like I got a crash course in how all of this works. Yeah. We have a couple of, just a few more questions, but I definitely want to figure out how to end on a positive note. But this question is (laughs) also a little intense, but, um, do you, I, I, and this question is like, coming from somebody who believes we're still in a patriarchy and it makes me sad. So how do women on campus shift power dynamics of ingrained patriarchal tendencies in sexual situations? Because on college, in college, you have people who are young and definitely having sex and definitely in experiences that they have never had before. And which is should, great. Yeah, which is great. And you should be doing all those things in college. But, you know, should the onus be on the woman? How do we educate men better? Like, should we be having consent apps? Do you have any thoughts on on that's a lot of questions, but do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, I I don't think the onus should be only on women, but we might have to carry the weight with this too, right? Yeah. Like everything else. But um yeah, I think just training men and focusing on men, changing the language again. Like you were saying, that it's not violence against women. It's, you know, men who perpetrate against women or something figure out things, you know, male perpetrators. But um, I think that that is a part of it. I think leadership stuff helps as well. You can't, I can't remember who said it, but it's a great thing about you can't be what you don't see. So getting mm-hmm. women into leadership and leading by example is going to be really important. And then holding people accountable when they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. I think that's so important. Because we we all see that somebody harassing somebody harassing somebody and then never get called on the carpet that doesn't work we've got to we've got to make sure that that changes so it's, I mean the patriarchy strong but women we just got to get in leadership roles I yeah. think it's the only answer now yeah and by that I mean police officers I put in the book and I used to teach this in intro there's always a student who'd say you know we talk about diversity in policing and the student would somebody would always raise their hand and say, it doesn't really matter that most police officers are white males. And I said, oh, really, it doesn't matter? No. I said, then it wouldn't really matter if all police officers were women, would it? Huh. <laughs> I know. Because yes. I think that, can you imagine how different policing would yeah. be? Yeah. It would be very different. Very different. And so that's very unsettling to the person who didn't seem to think it was a big deal that they're all white males. And then I'd ask them, well, what about if all police officers were African-Americans? How would it be different? Mm-hmm. And it's weird, but that's the only thing that kind of gets through to them, that the diversity is really important. Yeah. 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 A lot of things. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, your classes that when you are in classroom settings or working with students, it must just like kind of blow your mind every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you notice, do you notice a change in, in students? Like their viewpoints? Um, or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the students that I'm encountering, number one, it's they're predominantly female now. Mm. It's really unusual. Um, I mean, our classes are dominated by females, which is very interesting. And I'll go talk at community colleges to encourage students to go to, you know, get their four-year degree. And at that point, there seemed to be 50-50, but the men peel off somewhere, and mm. they're not making it to, to where I am. So that, that one part of it. 
also being in a criminal justice group, right? People usually think, oh, we're training people to become police officers. But no, that's not very few of our students come in wanting that. They want to come in and be advocates. They want to work with sex traffic victims. They want, I mean, all of these things, and that's really different than it used to be. It used to be kind of your standard, I, I want to work for the FBI, was mm-hmm. the big one. But now they want, to, they want to do things to help people who have survived things like trafficking and um, sexual violence. And so I think that's really cool that that's happening. That's, that's really another cool. thing that kind of our book reflects is that it's not, you know, here's how you be a cop. This is the system. Here's how it's imperfect. I want you to think about it so that you can go into the system and make changes that are better. That's, That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. 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 And encouraging that you you have so many female students. It's very very rad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Angela, do you have any more questions? Um, I think we hit everything. I know. I mean, um, Callie, you're awesome. I'm just like yeah. so glad. Unless you there's anything do this. else you'd like to add, Callie. Yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, the one thing that I and this has been ever since the presidential election, which was a little bit transformative for me, <laughs> is that I, I encourage women out there also, like leadership in universities and things are important, but we've got to run for office. We've yeah. got to run for office and be those policymakers. And until that is not something that we're at least 50-50, I don't think things are going to change very fast. But I hope that anyone who's listening or thinking about it We'll get the training and do what you can do. The research shows that women have to be asked seven times to run for office before they'll do it. Wow. Men need to be asked once. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So consider this me asking six times everybody who's listening to run for office. Yeah. And then, yeah, we can ask them Run again. for office, run but, for office, run for yes, office. Yes, do it. <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah, really yeah. do it. If it's school board, if it's legislature, you know, the legislature, if it's, you know, anything, we've got to get out there and and do that work yeah that's just my big rally cry these days totally and i and i'm not and i put my money where mouth was i went through a group this year to uh, that trained me to run for office and so awesome amazing so cool that's great oh man we'll come work on your campaign (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) um this has just been so great thank you so much for joining us and yeah time this has been really inspiring and very informative yeah oh good well thanks for asking when you when you first wrote, I'm like, this is awesome. I've been telling all my friends about it. So. Oh yay! <laughs> awesome, Clams. Thank you so much for listening. Thank as you always, so much. Um, reach out on social media if you have questions, comments, concerns. Uh, I, we learned that iTunes has changed their name to Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. So you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave us comments there as well. Uh, check out our Patreon. Check out our Patreon. Hopefully there's going to be some video content on there soon. From check the out our show notes. Check out our show notes. Check, check out, out all the stuff. We're on Instagram a lot. You can always send us a message there because we're on it a lot. Okay, we love you, Clems. Uh, be safe out there and talk to you soon. And run for office. Bye. Welcome to the clam bake. It's the opposite of a sausage fest. Just a couple of vaginas talking. What's a creative podcast? Never.